from chapter 4 to chapter 31 of Job. Job conversed with his three friends about the meaning of suffering. Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. And the upshot of those chapters was that the theory of those three friends was inadequate. It was unsatisfactory. They had argued that suffering is basically punishment for sin. And prosperity is reward for righteousness. Job's extraordinary experience of suffering can only be explained by extraordinary wickedness. Job had defended himself by saying that there's good evidence from all over the world. If you just ask the people that ply the trade routes, you stupid friends, you would find out that there are wicked people around the world who prosper and don't suffer one whit, and that there are righteous people who suffer And then he looks at his own case and says, I've committed no extraordinary sin that would set me apart for suffering like this. So Eliphaz and Bildad and Zophar are not able to sustain their theory of suffering with Job. They get quieter and quieter until at the end, Bildad can only get out a few sentences and Zophar can't speak anymore. Job has won the argument. But he doesn't answer his own question. He has shown that suffering cannot be adequately explained by a simple principle of retributive justice that says you get what you deserve. That doesn't work, he argues. But he doesn't have very much to put in its place. At the end of chapter 31, he's left speaking and we're left feeling that he believes God is capricious There is arbitrariness in the world and there is no answer to why the righteous suffer in these extraordinary ways. Now, it would be possible to just close the book right there and have a a theology you could live with. You really could. Most Christians, I think, do try to live with this theology. It would say basically this. Yes, I believe God rules over the world and controls all things. And yes, I believe that he is just and wise. And yes, even though I can't understand it, things that look arbitrary and capricious now will be righted in the age to come. I have seen the love of God in Jesus Christ showed to me. And I believe that the only hope of meaning in this life and the only hope for vindication in the age to come is to cleave to him, I will be still and serve God. He could live like that. That honors God. That's a good way to live. But it's not where this writer wanted to stay. This writer is not satisfied to stop there. And so there emerges on the scene at the end of chapter 31 uh, a young man named Elihu. He begins his speech in chapter 32 and it goes to the end of chapter 37. Six chapters. And here we learn something about suffering that is new, I believe. According to Elihu, the suffering of the righteous is not a token of God's enmity toward them. It's a token of his love. 
It is not a punishment of their wickedness. It's a refinement of their righteousness. It is not a preparation for destruction. It's a protection from ultimate destruction. The three friends have been wrong. Job has been wrong. The three friends had said suffering is proof of sin. Elihu says it is not a proof of sin. Job was wrong. He said, my suffering is a proof of God's arbitrariness because I'm innocent. He's just. There's no way to explain anything in the world. It's all unintelligible, arbitrary capriciousness. In fact, he goes so far as to say God has become his enemy. Elihu doesn't like either of those and intends to put things on a new footing. So I want us to try to understand Elihu's theology this morning, but before we do that, we need some reasons why we should think it's true. Historically, Elihu has not gotten very good marks. Most commentators, I think, in fact, class him with Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, just a younger version of those three sages. I read 40 pages of one commentator's words about Elihu and collected these descriptions of this young man. Cruel, cold, detached, crass, trite, perfectionist, vain, etc. And I'm going to argue he speaks the very words of God. So I need to give you some reasons for why you should uh, hear the sermon this morning as truth from Elihu who speaks on behalf of God. Admittedly, these are hard speeches to understand and admittedly, much of what he says sounds like Eliphaz. And the reason for that is that not everything Eliphaz said was bad. And admittedly, he was tough on Job and perhaps too tough, too hard sometimes. But there are five reasons why I want you to be persuaded that what you read when you read these six chapters is not more bad theology, but good theology rightly applied to Job's situation. Reason number one. The words are introduced in chapter 32, and I invite you to turn to chapter 32 of Job with me. They're introduced not as a continuation or clarification, or repetition of what these other three friends of Job had said. Let's read verses 1 to 3. So these three men ceased to answer Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. And then Elihu, the son of Barachel, the Buzite of the family of Ram, became angry. And he was angry at Job because he justified himself rather than God. And he was angry at Job's three friends because they had found no answer, although they declared Job to be in the wrong. So Elihu disagrees with both sides of the argument. You can see this down in verse 14. Drop down to verse 14 of chapter 32, where he says to these three friends, uh, Job has not directed his words against me, so I will not answer him with your speeches. So he, he explicitly dissociates himself with these three fellows. He has no intention of trying to pick up where they left off and just repeat the same things they had to say. Second argument, 
Look at the space devoted to Elihu's words. Six whole chapters. Now, the reason this startles is because the inadequacy of the theology of Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar was shown by how their speeches became so inadequate they petered out at the end. Bildad, in chapter 25, could manage six verses of platitudes, and when it came Zophar's turn to complete the third cycle, he was silent. He had nothing more to say. Wouldn't it be amazing, then, that this writer, having used that particular method to show the inadequacy of those three theologians, should come along and devote six whole chapters to more garbage? I think the the substantial quantity of space devoted to this young man's theology is a sign that the writer thinks something valuable, something important is in the offing here. Third reason, Job doesn't try to argue with Elihu, even though he's given the chance. Job had been very successful in silencing Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. Now here comes Elihu, and in chapter 33, verse 32, he says to Job, if you have anything to say, answer me. And there's no, there's no answer. Why? Is Job tired? He just built up a big head of steam. He had utterly conquered those other guys. If this is more of the same, why no comment? I think it's because he agrees. And in chapter 42, verse 6, he's on his face, repenting in dust and ashes. Why? Because Elihu was right. He had sinned in the way he talked about God. Reason number four. Chapter 42, verse 7. God takes stock of what's happened over these past months in the dialogues between Job and his friends. And here's what he says. My wrath is kindled against you, Eliphaz. Maybe I better read the first half of the verse. After the Lord had spoken these words to Job... The Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My wrath is kindled against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. Where's the rebuke of Elihu? If this is six chapters of rehashed bad theology, where's the critique from the Almighty when he starts assessing who speaks what? There is no critique, there is no criticism Because I believe Elihu's six chapters are the first half of the answer and God's next chapters are the rest of the answer to Job's problem. Finally, my reason is that Elihu really does give something new here. There is a new explanation of the suffering of the righteous here that is different from what Job said and different from what the other three friends said. And so let's get into it and... Let the content itself see whether or not it commends itself to us from what we know elsewhere in Scripture. Elihu thinks that Job has been wrong in some of what he has said. He puts his finger on Job in chapter 33, verses 8 to 12. And we'll read this together and you watch for what he thinks is wrong. Chapter 33, verse 8. Surely you have spoken in my hearing and I have heard the sound of your words. You say, I am clean without transgression. I am pure. and There is no iniquity in me. Behold, God finds occasions against me. He counts me as his enemy. 
He puts my feet in the stocks and watches all my paths. Behold, Elihu says, in this you are not right. Job is wrong to claim innocence at the expense of God's grace. And we know that Elihu is right here because Job is going to repent of this. Chapter 42, verse 6. Job's suffering has driven him to say things that are too optimistic about himself and too disrespectful of God. He is a righteous man. God said it. Chapter 1, verse 1. The most righteous man in the land. And he is a sinner when suffering falls. Elihu's understanding of why the righteous suffer now has to do with this sediment of pride. Evidently, at the bottom of Job's life, lying like sediment at the bottom of a beaker, was a remnant of pride and self-reliance and independence. And the beaker of his life was clean until it began to be shaken by suffering. And then the sediment began to be stirred up and it came out in words that were overly self-justifying and overly disrespectful to his maker. Elihu, in chapter 33, verses 14 to 19, puts his finger on this issue as he tries to understand why the righteous suffer. He says in these verses, 14 and 19, that God speaks to men in two ways, by his word and by his providence. Or in those days before there was any scripture, you would say in dreams and visions and in things that befall a man like suffering and sickness. Let's read these verses. Verse 14. For God speaks in one way and in two, though man does not perceive it. And then he gives the two ways. First, in a dream. In a vision of the night when deep sleep falls upon men while they slumber on their beds, then he opens the ears of men and terrifies them with warnings that he may turn man aside from his deed and cut off pride from man. He keeps back his soul from the pit, his life from perishing by the sword. Number two. Man is also chastened with pain upon his bed and with continual strife in his bones. Okay, now do you see the two way God speaks to men? The pain of sickness and the visions of the night are put side by side as two ways that God speaks for man's good. You see that in verse 17? What's the purpose of God? That he may turn man aside from his deed, cut off pride from man, keep him back from the pit of destruction. In other words, God's purpose in the suffering of the righteous is not to punish but to save To save him from contemplated deeds of sin. To save him from pride. To save him ultimately from the death of destruction. 
Elihu does not picture God here as an angry judge, does he? He pictures God here as a redeemer, a savior, a rescuer, a doctor. The pain of Job is not the pain of the executioner's whip. It's the pain of the surgeon's scalpel. To save him from his pride. To save him from going into any deeper sin. To bring him back from the pit of destruction. Elihu explains his view of suffering one other place. Turn to chapter 36, verses 6 to 15. The helpful thing now in these verses is going to be that he makes so explicit the fact that there is such a thing as a righteous person who sins. This is what we have to get clear. When the Bible talks in the Old Testament about righteous people, it does not mean sinless people. There is such a thing as a righteous sinner. Now that's helpful because God had said Job was a righteous man. Job had used this argument to say that his suffering was utterly unwarranted. There can be no connection between my moral condition and my suffering. He had used his righteousness to successfully ward off the false theology of his friends. And now Elihu goes at it a slightly different way. He pictures two groups of people here in chapter 36. The wicked, the godless, and the righteous sinner. Let's read it. Verse 6, he does not keep the wicked alive, but gives the afflicted their right. He does not withdraw his eyes from the righteous, but with kings upon the throne, he sets them forever and they are exalted. Now, if you stopped right there, perceptive readers would all say, that's Eliphaz talking. That's unreal. He doesn't keep the wicked alive. He sets the, the afflicted righteous on thrones. Baloney, we would say, right? But the reason it's not bad for us to talk like that, and you read things like that all through the Psalms, is because it is ultimately true. The wicked will come to naught. The righteous will be seated on thrones. The problem is, what about the short run? That's what's bugging Job. What about the short run of this life? How do I account for the misery of the righteous here? And so Eliphaz doesn't stop. I mean, Elihu doesn't stop here. He goes on in verse 8 and says, And if they, now notice who they is, that's the righteous. If the righteous are bound in fetters and caught in cords of affliction. Now, just stop there and see what's happened. If you're you're carefully reading, you see immediately he's qualified what he just said. If it's true that the righteous can be caught in the cords of affliction, well, then they're not sitting in comfort on thrones with kings anymore. When you read the Old Testament, don't yank things out and 
force unnecessary opposition. Let the writers in the fullness of their emotion and the way they write guide you and let them qualify their own statements for you so you get inside their heads instead of artificially shaping their words around what you think they might mean. He didn't mean that there was an absolute comfort for the righteous in verse 6 and 7. Let's pick up verse 8 again. If they, the righteous, are bound in fetters and caught in cords of affliction, then God declares to them their work and their transgressions that they are behaving arrogantly. He opens their ears to instruction and commands them that they return from iniquity. In other words, the righteous, he calls them righteous, are far from sinlessly perfect. There is much of the old nature left in the most righteous man or woman. And it came out when it was stirred up by suffering through Job's mouth in words that were sinful against God. And Job repents of that eventually in chapter 42. Elihu's teaching is that affliction makes the righteous person sensitive to the remaining sinfulness and helps him hate it and renounce it. Look at verse 10. Suffering opens the ear of the righteous. What does that mean? Does it mean something like uh, Psalm 119.71 which says, It was good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn thy statutes. I got an ear when I got sick. Isn't that strange that the pedagogy of God is pain? There are dimensions of God's reality. There are extensive dimensions of righteousness and holiness and godliness that only the suffering can attain. Because he digs them an ear. He opens an ear through their affliction. The new slant that Elihu gives is that the suffering of the righteous is not the fire of destruction, but the fire that refines the gold of their goodness. Because it's not punitive, it's curative, rehabilitative. Look again at verses 13 to 15 here in this same chapter, 36. He describes the same contrast between how the godless and the righteous afflicted experience suffering. He says, the godless in heart cherish anger. They do not cry for help when he binds them. They die in youth and their life ends in shame. So that's the way one kind of person experiences suffering. Here's the other. He delivers the afflicted by their affliction or in their affliction, and he opens their ear by adversity. Look, verses 13 and 14 describe one group of people for whom suffering results in nothing but destruction. The godless in heart. When the godless in heart experience suffering, it is for destruction. But, in verse 15, he describes another kind of experience of suffering. There is a group of people called the righteous in the previous verses 
who when they suffer, have an ear opened for them. They experience deliverance. Their purpose from God is not destruction. So let's step back now and ask this question. How has Elihu advanced our understanding of the suffering of the righteous beyond where Job and his three friends had taken it at the end of chapter 31? Let's go back to chapter 32, where he began, and see if we can answer that question in summary. He had two complaints when he began his speech. Verse 2, near the end. He was angry because Job justified himself rather than God. And second, he was angry because Job's three friends couldn't find any answer even though they declared Job to be in the wrong. So I believe Elihu has now succeeded in showing why his anger was justified. He has shown that Job's three friends are wrong. They said that the only way you can explain successfully this incredible suffering that Job is going through is to point to some incredible wickedness that he's committed. He's not a righteous man. He is a wicked man. Eliphaz said it to his face. Elihu says that's not right. Job is a righteous man, and the righteous suffer, and their suffering is not punishment for sin. It is refinement of their righteousness. Suffering awakens their ear to new dimensions of God's reality and new depths of their own need and their own imperfection. Suffering deepens their faith and deepens their godliness and opens their eyes to magnificent truths about God. So the three friends are wrong. And Job is wrong, secondly. Job didn't have any better explanation of why he was suffering than they did. In fact, his conception of God's justice was basically as limited as theirs. God is just, I'm his righteousness. Reality makes no sense. God is arbitrary or capricious. It'll all work out beyond the grave, but right now, everything's up for grabs. This is chaos. This world makes no sense. He had said in chapter 13, verse 24, Why dost thou hide thy face and count me as thine enemy? He says, God, you're my enemy. And Elihu says to Job, He is not your enemy, and it is sin to call him your enemy. He is your father. And he has allowed this sickness to drag on for months because he loves you, not because he hates you. The suffering has brought out the residue, the sediment of sin in Job's life. And God graciously, mercifully exposes it to Job and brings him to his face. And that's mercy, brothers and sisters. All mercy. And we ought to pray, reveal to me my hidden faults. If God ever answered that prayer for you, you'd be on your face like Job. And you wouldn't be calling God into question nearly as often as we are prone to do. The central lesson then of the book of Job today is that the children of God who trust God. These are the people who trust God, who are led by the Holy Spirit, 
who are covered by the blood of Jesus, who are being sanctified freely by His grace, suffer. And when they suffer, it is not punishment. Christ has borne our punishment. There is no double jeopardy in the world. Christ does not come to you and say, I have borne your punishment. And allow you to turn around and say, I'm being punished. There is no punishment for the children of God. There is only merciful, kind, gentle, and if necessary, severe surgery. Discipline. Suffering is not dispensed willy-nilly among the people of God. It is apportioned to us as individually designed expert therapy by the loving hand of our great physician. And its aim is that our faith might be refined, our holiness might be enlarged, our soul might be saved, and our God might be glorified. In this you rejoice. Though now for a little while you may have to endure various trials, Peter said, in order that the genuineness of your faith, which more precious than gold is tested by fire, might redound unto praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take, the clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and will break in blessings on your head. Great God of Job and infinite, eternal, sovereign Father, be exalted and honored in the faith of your people this week at Bethlehem. And if any have come this morning whose wills and hearts have not been subdued and made captive to your sovereign love, Grant them no rest today until they yield to you through Jesus Christ, our Savior and our God. And all the people said, Amen.